Uh, right now, the ushers are going to receive the offering. So if you brought that with you, you can take that out. While they're doing that, I'm going to mention a couple of things that are going on. But I just want to connect some value to these things. Um, we are a multi, I was driving here this morning, I was thinking, I'm a, we're a multi-church. We are multi-generational and we are multicultural as a church. Um, and multi just means many, right? So we have many generations and we have that because we've been around a while. Our church is not brand new. We didn't just start yesterday. And so we have a lot of people, we have a lot of generations here in this church and it's a beautiful thing. And then we're multicultural. Uh, in fact, one of the things I noticed that our baptisms over Thursday and this first service, the second service today, we're an incredibly diverse community of faith. And so um, there are things we do to lean into that as a community of faith. And so I'm just going to mention a couple of things along those lines. First, in terms of multi generational, we really value, uh, I really value in our church, those that have, have gone before us, the foundation builders, as you might say, in our body. And so every month there's this thing called prime timers where there's a lunch and, and people get together and they eat and it's people that have a little bit more gray in their hair than I do, but um, I'm getting close to being qualified, I think. I don't know, maybe I'm getting there. But uh, it's, a, it's an amazing gathering. And this month, uh, it happens on Wednesday, uh, this coming Wednesday, I'm actually gonna be sharing some things from my heart with that crew. So if you find yourself in that older demographic in our church, and sometimes you wonder, where's my place? Or where do I connect? Or how do I belong and build community? That's just one of the things that we do for you. And so I wanted to mention that one today. And then as it relates to being multicultural, um, we have someone on our staff, Christina Chen, who is our multicultural ministry leader. In fact, she baptized some families in our last service. And, uh, and Christina leads efforts around our church to really create community and to help folks belong that might be new to not just our church, but also to our country. And so she has an incredible ministry with diverse populations all around. And every, in fact, every week between our two morning services, there's a gathering of people uh, upstairs in our loft area where they're just connecting even more uh, around the Bible and around what God's showing them, but they're doing it in a very diverse community of faith. In fact, I popped up there um, this morning and it was just amazing to see the diversity in that room. Um, but they do all sorts of things. And one of the things they're doing next week is something called Table of Grace. And it's after our morning services, there's a time of like a Thanksgiving meal that's inspired by lots of different cultures. And so anybody's invited to that. You can, if you just want to have more exposure to different cultures, if you are as a person, just you're looking for a place to belong and you want to meet some people and connect, um, this Table of Grace is next Sunday. If you want to go to it, be a part of it, you can check it out on the website or stop at the info center. Um, but both of those things, I think, are beautiful expressions of who we are as a larger body and uh, the last thing I want to mention is that today's the last day that if you have a friend or family member that uh, could use one of our Thanksgiving dinner boxes, um, today's the last day that you can recommend them. So on our website, there's this place where you can give us a name of a coworker or a neighbor or a family member, somebody who you know would benefit from one of those boxes. Um, this week is the last week that you can drop off the items for those boxes. And if you want to help assemble those and get those out, um, you can also sign up at the info center or the website to be a part of the distribution of that. So I want to mention that to you as well. But we have just have a long history of serving people through that ministry and uh, excited to do it again this year. Um, you know, several weeks ago, we began a series uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a really strange book. Uh, a lot of people get to Ecclesiastes, they'll be reading their Bible, they open it up and they, they kind of scratch their heads and they say, what in the world is this all about? Uh, Ecclesiastes is a strange book. It's, it's included in the wisdom literature of the Bible. So there are five wisdom books in the scriptures. Ecclesiastes is one of those. And yet Ecclesiastes seems to present a wisdom that is different than other wisdom. Um, 
The other wisdom literature typically follows a pattern. It's like wise people do wise things and they get wise results. Foolish people do foolish things and they get foolish results. But then you come to Ecclesiastes and Ecclesiastes is that book that's written for all of us who tried to do the wise thing and we got the foolish result. Or somehow you did the foolish thing and lightning struck and you got the wise result. And you go, I don't deserve this. And you go, I don't know. It's, it's for the wisdom that's beyond wisdom. It's for those of us that have worked towards something only to realize when we got there, there wasn't much substance to it. That's what Ecclesiastes is for. It's for people who have lives that have had unmet expectations. That's who Ecclesiastes is for. So we've been walking through this book and every time we open the Bible, you know, the Bible is, is a living, breathing document. So every time we open it up, it's like we're having a conversation. It's like God is speaking to us. And I think there are real time insights. We're not just studying history. We're actually hearing from God when we open the Bible, and he speaks to us in the moment, and he's been speaking to us in ways, I think, through this book that are really challenging, and, and, and they reveal us to us how to find meaning, and how to find joy, and how to find peace in these kinds of times that we live in. So with that, I want to do something a little different today. I want you to open your Bible to chapter 9. That's where we're going to land ultimately today. But as you're turning there, I want to give a survey of what we've covered already, because if you've been with us, You've probably noticed that there's a pattern to the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a rhythm to the book of Ecclesiastes. And in Hebrew literature, in Hebrew culture, whenever an author worked in some sort of rhythm or pattern, there's usually some sort of meaning to the pattern. So it's not just random. They do it because there's something they're trying to illuminate. There's something that they're trying to draw our attention to. And the same is true with this book. There's a pattern. And when you see the pattern, you start to see some other things. So I want to recap where we've been just so that it's all very fresh in our minds what the pattern actually is. So when you open up to the first couple of chapters of Ecclesiastes, it's incredibly depressing, right? If you were here for our first week, you saw this. He basically defines life as chasing after the wind. It's a really interesting metaphor, chasing after the wind. It is a metaphor for futility. Like we know that wind exists. We can't deny the wind's existence. And yet trying to take hold of it, trying to chase it, trying to make something out of it is nearly impossible. And he says life is very much this way. So the first two chapters are all the stuff, all the things we accumulate. Uh, all the tasks that we try to accomplish, all the jobs that we throw ourselves into, all of this stuff that we try to squeeze meaning out of is essentially vapor. It's empty. You're just searching for these things. That's the first two chapters. Life is sort of empty. What's the point of it? He's kind of drawing our attention to this. But then there's this hard right turn that he takes at the end of chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. He says all of this meaningless, meaningless, chasing after the wind. And then he says, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment. So we go meaningless, meaningless, chasing after the wind, nothing is gained, but then we have this, but you can eat and you can drink and you can enjoy the work of your hands because life is a gift from God. 
that ends, then you open up to chapter 3, and he flips back to going back to this, this same doom and gloom. Here's a good summary. Verse 19 of, of chapter 3, he says, Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. Everything is havel. Everything. And so now we're back into full despair mode. That despair continues into chapter 4. He says this in verse 1. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no comforter. And if you hadn't had enough despair yet, on to chapter 5, verse 10. Lane talked about this last week. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. There's never enough money for those who love money. But then chapter 5, verse 19, we get this. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, rejoice in their work, this is the gift of God. So once again, life can be good, life can be enjoyed. He lets us up for air for a moment. Don't get too down. But then he shoves us back down into Eeyore mode in chapter 6. In verse 3, he says, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. Then he goes to chapter 7, verse 29. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Then chapter 8, verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and other things. In other words, he's saying there are bad things that happen to good people. And then he goes on and says, and then there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteousness. There are good things that happen to bad people. He's asking this existential question. He's identifying it. For as long as man has been alive, that there are bad things that happen to good people. And he says, I said that this is also vanity. But then in the very next verse, and I commend, men, commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Then chapter 9, more doom and gloom. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. And then guess what happens next in chapter 9? Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. So, so here's the first, first nine chapters basically summarized. It's meaningless, meaningless, have a little joy, have a, little, have a little purpose, right? Then meaningless, meaningless, eat a little food, drink a little wine. Meaningless, meaningless, don't worry, be happy. You can like hear Bobby McFerrin in the background. You're like, which one is it, right? In fact, um, that's the question. If you are a rational, sane person and you read the book of Ecclesiastes, at some point you have to stop and say, which one do you want me to do? Is life, is life meaningless and empty or do you want me to have a little joy, a little meaning, a little purpose? I don't understand which it is, what it is. Like, what do I do with this? Is it doom and gloom? Is it like 
Eeyore is off in the corner listening to Bob Dylan? Or is it Tigger listening to Bob Marley? Like, which one is it? Because you seem to get the contrast here, right? And I, I hope at this point in the series that you, when I put in front of you, like, is it door number one or is it door number two? I hope at this point you've learned enough about Ecclesiastes and maybe about me that you say, I'll take door number three, right? There's probably another way to understand this. You already know, you've already had enough experience with this book. You're probably already saying, I wonder if the answer is someplace like between yes and no. Let me show you something. Let me ask you a question. Is there, is there another way to understand this? How many of us have had enough life experience to realize that we cannot control the outcomes in our life. Raise your hand if you've lived enough life to realize that, right? Most of us in the room, right? Like when we charge into something and we make our plans and we have our strategy and we do our research and we start to begin down a certain road, there is no guarantee that whatever we have planned and prepared for, however hard we've studied, there's no guarantee that it won't go up in smoke. There's no guarantee that things won't turn out the way we expected. Like, there's a chance that nothing goes the way we expected it to go. That's just part of the human experience. This is why anytime I'm about to do something that, um, that is, like, either dangerous or nerve-wracking and someone will say to me, hey, are you nervous? My answer is always yes. I'm always nervous. People ask me before I speak, are you nervous? Yes, I'm always nervous because I don't know what's going to happen when I get up here ever. Right? There are so many things in life where I just don't know because I've had enough life experience to know that I do not control the outcomes in my life. The problem is that in a modern world, we have been guaranteed, we've been told that if we do enough things that we can somehow control the outcomes and those guarantees are no good. We've been given this illusion over and over again. Well, you do all the right things, you plan this way, you play by these rules, and there's guaranteed outcomes for us. And if you have enough experience, you realize those guarantees aren't real guarantees. And so the teacher of Ecclesiastes is trying to get us to see this. He's trying to open our eyes. There's all of this stuff. There's all of this planning. There's all this strategy. And you have this illusion of control until the moment that you realize you don't. The outcomes are not up to you. And it turns out that control is an illusion. Certainty, however, is not. And I want to show you something. Verse 4 of chapter 9, he says this, he says, Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. So let me unpack this in two parts. The first part here. The word hope here, is where it says anyone among the living has hope. This word hope in the Hebrew language, it's being translated into hope, is a really fascinating one for us. In fact, here's why it's fascinating. It almost never occurs in the Old Testament. There's only three times that this word in the Hebrew language is used in the Old Testament. So all the different words that are used, only three times, and it's only used in two different places. So realistically, this word is only used twice in the Old Testament. And the Hebrew word, what it's based on, is the word bitahon. So just say bitahon with me. Beautiful. Now, this word, the other place that it's translated besides here, it is not translated as hope. It's translated as certainty. 
Because for the Hebrew understanding, the ideas of certainty and the idea of hope are deeply intertwined together. There is a certainty because of the understanding of hope that a Hebrew mind was working with. Now, why is this important? Well, this is important because the way that they use that in their language is radically different than how we use that word in our language. Hope is not the language of certainty in our language today, right? Hope is about something. When we talk, someone goes, do you have hope for something? You say, yes. Well, what is that? Hope is that we know there's something out in the future and we have a preferred way that we would like those events to take place. And we call that hope. I have hope and I'm hoping for this thing, right? So, so maybe a better way to understand it is that hope in our language is like wishing, right? I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope the Blazers win. I have no control over that. I have learned this over the years. I don't have control over whether the Blazers win or lose. I have hopes that they would in my language. I wish they would, right? I, you know, you can hope that your kids get scholarships, but you can't control that. So when we use the word hope, there's no guarantee. It may or may not happen. That's how we use it, and it's very different than the Hebrew thinking. Like in our, in our culture, if, if, a, if a wife came to her husband and said, I hope to love you in five years, that would not be very encouraging, right? But to a Hebrew person... To say you bit to hone, to say you hope to love them is a statement of certainty. There's, there's, there's something so solid that you're able to live in the moment a particular way because you have an understanding about the future. So, so the true definition of hope, and by the way, this reaches into all different places of our understanding of hope in the Bible. The true understanding of hope is that there is certainty about a future that allows me to live a particular way in this present moment, which is exactly what the writer is getting to here. When he talks about being a live dog versus a dead lion, that's what he's getting at. There's this reality that these people are certain of something, and what are they certain of? They're not wishing. They know something. And what they know, and this seems very simplistic until you think about it, what they know is that they are alive. They are alive. When you realize you're alive, you realize this moment that's in front of me right now, this moment matters. It matters. So he says, better to be a living dog than a dead Lion. That is chock full of all sorts of symbolism in this culture. Dogs and lions. Let me talk about these for just a moment. First, let's talk about lions for a second. Let me just give you a little image to remind you of lions and their beauty and their strength. Lions. In our culture, when we think of a lion, we think of royal, we think of regal, we think of powerful, we think of the king of the jungle. That's what we think of, right? Lions, there is just a respectable honor given to lions, right? That's the way we think of it in our culture. That's exactly how the Hebrews thought of lions. That's why we talk about Jesus being referred to as the lion of Judah. There's this understanding of kingship, right? There's this understanding of royalty, of power, of authority. So we had a very similar understanding about lions. However, we have a radically different understanding of the word dog and what that means. Um, dogs are very different in our culture from their culture. Let me just give you a little picture of one of my dogs, my favorite dog of the two. Um, this is Koa. She also goes by Bear. 
Uh, only in our culture do we give dogs nicknames, right? So she has two names. This is what she does when I study at home. For hours, she just stares at me and just watches me. Every now and then, she'll just make a little noise, just waiting. Like, literally hours, she'll do this. When I'm not around, she gets on the couch. How do I know that? Because I catch her, right? This dog has a really good life. Last night, I was, I was watching some sports center, and she's sitting there whining at me. I'm like, what do you want? Finally, I realize I'm in her place on the couch. We really don't let our dogs on the furniture, but somehow this dog thinks she has a place on the couch. And sure enough, when I moved, she jumped up. I'm like, what is this, right? Dogs have it good in our culture. I have one friend that bought his dog a treadmill. It's just an amazing, amazing thing, right? Dogs have it really good. In fact, let me give you another example. Um, some people go a little further. I saw this guy. I was in Spokane. <clears throat> There's also a chocolate lab there too, by the way. You can see it down lower. I'm walking down the street for some meetings uh, about a year ago, and I see this guy drive by. I thought, do you just like, hey, dogs, load up. We're going. Like, we're going for a ride. So these dogs have it good. This dog, this next one, this guy, um, I don't know how I feel about this. But I will say this, if you don't believe that this is enough reason to lose your man card, this next one is. He's hidden his identity on purpose. You can tell by the look on his face, he knows this is not right, right? This is not okay, right? This is an in modern, developed countries in the world, dogs have it really good these days. Can I just tell you, in the ancient civilization, this is not how they thought of dogs. Dogs, calling somebody a dog in the Bible was always demeaning. Dogs are despised. Think about this. Dogs, in, in a world where there was food scarcity, dogs were competitors with your children for food. Dogs carried diseases. They were mangy. They were disgusting. And so anytime someone's referred to or talked about as a dog, it is the worst possible description. It is like calling somebody a cockroach or a rat, whatever it might be. When Goliath and David are battling together and, and Goliath says, you come at me with sticks and stones, do you think I'm a dog? He's saying that's the ultimate insult that you would think I am that low. That's the way they understood dogs. So when the writer says it would be better to be a living dog than a dead lion, this is unbelievably provocative language. This is attention grabbing. It would be better to be, to be this lowly, despised creature and be living. He's saying it's better to be alive. It's better to be breathing than to be respected and dead. And what he's trying to get us to see is the most important distinction that we can make in this life. He's helping us to make this distinction between these two things that frequently get fused together. In fact, when we merge these things together, it causes so much mental and spiritual anguish for us. Let me just keep reading for a moment and I'll talk about this. Verse 5, he says, For the living know that they'll die. Right? There's this certainty. They know something. They know that this moment matters. But the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. So basically, when you're dead, all is forgotten. And what he's, what he's doing, what he's pointing to with this whole dog and lion illustration 
is he's making a distinction, and this is it. There is a difference between the things that happen in your life and your life itself. There's a difference. And we tend to fuse these things together. We merge these things together. But there is a difference between the things that happen to you, your circumstances, the events of your life, and your life itself, your being. In fact, this might be really helpful for us as, as, we, as we understand Jesus and who he is. Um, you know, Jesus never said, I have come to make your wildest dreams come true. Never said that. Jesus never said, I have come that you would have a comfortable, easy life. He never said that. In fact, what Jesus says is that you will have many troubles in this life. Jesus said that. Jesus said, your life, you're going to have moments when things don't go as expected. That's a predictable thing. You are going to have troubles. Even as followers of Jesus, your life isn't going to always be smooth. But then Jesus also said, I have come that you would have life and life abundantly. Which then brings up a really interesting question. Can you have abundant life and struggle at the same time? How do you have abundant life when there is enough food on the table? How do you have abundant life when you're the live dog in your neighborhood, when you're the despised one? How do you have abundant life when there's not enough zeros in the checking account? How do you have an abundant life when relationships around you have fallen apart? How do you have abundant life in trouble? Well, you understand, when you understand that there is a distinction between the things that happen in your life and your life itself, that changes things. Are you with me? Glad a couple of you are. That's great. So there's this question we ask when we haven't seen people for a long time. We walk up to them and we say, how's life? Which is such a ridiculous question. Right? What they want to know is, tell me about the circumstances of your life. But the question is, how is life? Well, the answer to that is the fact that this arrangement of dust and molecules and liquids is somehow breathing and moving is a miracle and a gift. That's how life is. If you're able to ask me and I can breathe, it's a gift, right? It's meant to be appreciated regardless of the rising or the falling of the seas, the mountaintops or the valleys, the good or the bad. It's a gift. So think about your life for just a moment. Just think about it. Maybe you don't have the body that you wish you had. Maybe it's failing you. Maybe it's broken. Maybe you're disappointed or discouraged. Maybe, maybe your career aspirations, they haven't been met, or maybe they were met, and then you were like, is this all that there really is? Or maybe you thought at this point in your life, you would have a set of relationships around you, and they would look a certain way, and they would function a certain way. Maybe, maybe there's something you're struggling with. Maybe you have something that you're hiding. You'd never put it on display on a stage and say, look, this is in my life, but it's there. It's something you wrestle with. It's something that you're not proud of, but you just... Week after week or year after year, you wrestle with this internal thing. Take all of that stuff. Even if you're a dog, the teacher says, despised, weak, living in scarcity, depraved, it's better to be alive than to be the most saintly, royal, well-regarded dead person. 
And in all of this, he is waking us up to the moment that is right in front of us. He's inviting us to ditch this notion that you and I are defined by what happens to us. You're not defined by that. Your circumstances don't define you. So when you hear the message of Ecclesiastes, if you hear this is all despair, if you listen and you think, you think to yourself, this is horrible, this is depressing, then you have profoundly missed the point of the teacher. In fact, at the very end of chapter 9, he says this, verse 7, he says, Go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you're going, there's neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. But I want you to take another look at these words. Look at these words. Gladness, a joyful heart, being approved by God, enjoying life, experiencing love, the ability to work, the ability to plan, the gift of knowledge, experiencing wisdom. He says, these things can be yours if you will attach yourself radically to this gift of life that you have been given rather than your circumstances. If you do that, these beautiful things are yours. That's what he's showing us. And, and, and when you get that, when you begin to understand this, when you begin to realize that it's the breath that's the gift, there is a joy and there, there is a peace and there is a meaning that now begins to be infused in places and in areas that we never saw before. Now suddenly there are small things that come to life. There are mundane moments that now all of a sudden they take on all sorts of new beautiful meaning. There, there are simple things that begin to bring joy to you. There is beauty that you begin to observe. You start to see the value in certain things around you that you never saw before. You start to know what really matters. You start to know what really matters. These are the moments when you become aware. You become aware. And what the Bible is constantly teaching us is that the more aware you are, the more alive you are. The more aware you are of this gift that's in front of you, the more aware you are of the moment, the more alive you are, the more you experience this thing that Jesus called the kingdom of God. He says, look around, be aware, because the more aware you are, the more there will be life in your life. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is telling us, and it echoes in the heart of Jesus. Think about this. Um, Jesus, at one point, he's talking to his disciples, people that have chosen to follow him, and he says this. He says, anyone who wishes to save his life will lose it. In other words, if you have a moment and you think, I got to make meaning, I got to find purpose, I'm going to make joy, I'm going to have some sense of, of why I'm, and you start to try to make meaning out of life, you start grasping for vapor. He says, anyone that says, no, I'm going to make something of this thing called my life, he says, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose the very thing you're trying to save. But then in the next breath, he says, but if you lose your life for my sake, if you let it all go, you will find the very thing you're looking for. 
So the only thing we're being asked to do is to trust Jesus with the outcomes. Can we trust Jesus with the outcomes enough that we can live beautifully and wonderfully present in the moment? Amen? I want to take a moment to reflect. If you just maybe close your eyes and bow your head. We're going we're gonna to pray for just a moment. and Just reflect on this for just a second. I want to ask just a series of questions, and I want you to think through the, the genuine answer for you right now. Is there any outcome right now in your life that you are holding on to so tightly, like it has to be this way? Is there anything where you're so wound up about things turning out this particular way that you have lost your joy? Is there any situation, any scenario that because things don't, they don't seem to be turning out the way you expected, is there any situation where it's just killing you? It's eating you up inside that you had this thought it was going to go this way and it hasn't. Is it chewing you up inside? Do you find yourself more frustrated than you've ever been before? Are you having moments when you're getting angry and there's an anger that you haven't, you haven't quite had that kind of anger before? Or is there a sorrow that's been so deep, so profound that you thought there, there isn't even a way out of this? As you think about this, I want you to do me a favor. I want you just with your eyes closed, I want you to take a nice deep breath in through your nose and out through your mouth. Just breathe in and breathe out. I want you to do that again for me. Just take another nice deep breath. Just breathe in. Listen to yourself. Breathe out. I'm not asking you to do that to relax you. I'm asking you to do that to realize that right there is the gift. The fact that you can breathe in and breathe out is a gift. You are alive. You are alive. Jesus, we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for breath. We thank you that no matter what our circumstances, you are with us. We thank you that no matter how things have turned out, we can find joy and we can find peace and we can find meaning. And so, Lord, may we be the kind of people who loosen the death grip on outcomes and live fully present in the moment in which you have placed us. In your name. Amen. Amen. Would you guys stand with me? You know, I mention this, uh, I mention this quite often, but I want to mention it more. 
And that's the, if you're ever here and um, something sparks in your mind, something in your heart stirs, and you're like, man, I got to talk to somebody about this. We have folks uh, all around the room. Um, every service, there's folks wearing lanyards with orange name tags that are some of our elders here at B4. They are here to just talk about stuff with you, give you advice, pray with you. If you want to pray with somebody, um, that's what they're here for. So if one of them doesn't find you, go find them. They're prepared for you to ask them, like, hey, I need to talk to somebody. So we always want to make sure we're available as a community of faith. Does that make sense? And uh, if you ever have questions about anything, the people that stand at that info center out there, they're really bright and they're nice. And they really have a heart to connect you with whatever it is that God has for you here at B4. So I encourage you to stop by and see them. But before you go, I want to offer this benediction to you. So if you're willing, hold your hands out. And I'll lay this on you today. May you be men and women who have joy and peace and meaning. Not because you found and worked the perfect plan, but because you trusted Jesus with the outcomes and lived in the moment. In his name, amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today, you guys. We love you so much. Have an amazing, amazing week this week.